I want to talk about one of the most important things that we do any day, at any moment of the day, that matters more than probably, well, there's a couple of things that rank really high getting into this book. I remember telling Andrew Sweet one time, standing in the door of his RV, I says, Andrew, there's two things the devil doesn't want to see you do. One of them is to pick this up, to pick up this book. And the other he doesn't want you to do is get on your knees and cry out to God. It's not a good day for the devil when we have this book and we're on our knees before the Lord. He knows he cannot stop anything that's going on right there. And this is the one thing, or the two things I think, he wants to restrict us, get our minds busy, uh, get us in the wrong mood, and we think we can't do anything if we're not in a good mood <clears throat> spiritually. I think, I think God gets greater pleasure when we don't feel good and things have went haywire and we really don't feel like praying, we really don't feel like reading the Bible, we do it anyway. We just do it anyway. I believe God blesses that more because we're overcoming our own obstacles to touch, get in touch with Him. So what I'm going to be sharing is how important is prayer? How important is prayer? Sounds like a silly question really to ask, isn't it? Well, of course it's important. Uh, well, if prayer is automatically considered important, absolutely necessary, then what would be the follow-up question? <laughs> Why don't we do it more? I'll just help everybody out here. <laughs> um, you know, when Jesus was turning tables over and and messing up vendors who was making a living off of cheating people. Uh, he said, my house should be called a house of prayer. So I don't think we can overestimate prayer, but I think shamefully we underestimate it. Um, I'm, I'm, and and here's, another, here's another question I want to pose before you. Which is more important when it comes to prayer? Which is more important, learning and studying prayer or prayer activity? Is that equal? Yeah, I, I, those, those two things work off of each other. It says prayer activity is important, but how are we praying? And this was, this was a question, I'll get to some passages in a moment. This is the question that the disciples, mind you, they were trained in a culture of prayer. And yet they were asking Jesus to teach them how to pray, not teach them to, how to start praying. What they were saying is, teach us how you pray. Teach us what you know about prayer. They knew about prayer. Prayer is part of their culture. We'll get to that in just a moment. But there is a proper, or, or is there a proper way to pray? Is there a better way to pray? Could it be possibly there's a better way to pray than the way we pray? <laughs> yes, it is. So what does, that, what does that tell us? 
tells us we ought to be eager. It would be nice if we could just have Jesus in front of us and say, now you show me how I'm supposed to pray. And he just tells us directly. But this is why studying prayer and, you know, really and truly they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And if something can be taught, it can be what? Learned. And I think one of the things we do is prayer is just like, oh, it's just going to come natural or everybody has their natural way of praying and just pray your way. Could it be there's a better way to pray than the way we pray? And how do we get there? How do we find that? How do we, how do we adjust? And it's not just what we say, it's how we come to the Lord with it. There's so many dynamics involved in our prayer life. And that should be involved in our prayer life. Daniel, how often did Daniel pray? A day? Three times a day. And everybody knew he prayed three times a day. (laughs) Because he would open his window at those three times and face Jerusalem and pray. The temple was gone. It was destroyed. The, The locality where all of this was done was gone And not only was that, he was in a foreign land, but three times a day, he would get on his knees with with his face out the window, and undoubtedly some people were watching him and knew this was his habit, and this is where they thought they would get rid of him. They used that against him by going to the king and says, hey, how about let's decree that nobody can pray and petition anybody but you, O king. And anybody who breaks that... We'll just throw him in the lion's den. Well, the king didn't really know that that was a ruse to get rid of Daniel. And you know the story. They did. They threw him in the lion's den. But Daniel's habit, what was Daniel's habit? It was he's prayed three times a day. Now, where did he get that habit? One of the neat things about the Psalms is that um, there's all kind of prayers in the Psalms. You look at Psalm 51, David's most agonizing failure in his life, and he writes a song about it. And in that song, he he says something like, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Take not, this is part of his prayer, he sings it, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cleanse me, and I'll be clean. And he has all of these petitions in Psalm 51. Well, four Psalms later, David writes this. This is in Psalm 55. Well, let me just give you the passage on Daniel. Because Daniel is is living several hundred years after David. Daniel knows the Psalms. This is the Hebrew songbook. Okay? And and it says that Daniel always prayed to God three times every day, three times every day. He bowed down on his knees to pray and praise God. Even though Daniel heard about the new law, he still went to his house to pray. He went up to the upper room of his house, opened the window that faced toward Jerusalem, and Daniel bowed down on his knees and prayed just as he always had done. There's something about making something a habit. Doing something every day until it is second nature to you, right? Where did he get that idea? Well, it could be Psalm 55. 
And in Psalm 55, verse 16, uh, David, is, David starts this about the dilemma of he, he don't feel like his prayers are being answered, okay? So everything's going against him, but he gets to this point. He says, but as for me, I will call upon my God. I will call upon God and the Lord will save me. Evening, morning, and at noon, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. And most historians say that this was part of the Jewish culture, that there was morning prayers, there was a noon prayer, and there were evening prayers. The morning and evening prayers were longer prayers, but it was built in. So this is where the disciples and everybody was conditioned to pray those three times a day, morning, noon, and in the evening. Now, I think this became a pattern for David. I think this was David's pattern. He said, this is what I do. And I believe people like Daniel picked that up. Jesus, Jesus started his day earlier than the other men, the disciples that were with him. He would get up before daylight. I want to take you to Mark chapter 1. Um, is, this, is this getting some... I think we're getting something going on. All right, I'll try to block that out. I probably just brought your attention to it, so here we go. Jesus seemed to start his day earlier than the disciples, and in Mark chapter 1, he gets up for dark and he goes out. Well, I'll just read it, Mark 1, verse 34. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases. diseases. He cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. And... Now in the morning, having, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. So he had this day of healing and casting out demons and wouldn't let demons talk because they knew him. And he gets up before daylight and he goes out and prays. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. Now, they were desirous of Jesus showing them how to pray because on another occasion they said, teach us how to pray. As John, I think this is in Luke chapter 1 or chapter 11, verse 1, um, they find him again praying. He's, he, this is his habit. This is their habit. Now, I don't know, 12 men, 13 men going around in a group probably had their moments where they kind of stepped on each other's time, right? And <laughs> if they were all used to praying individually, that had to be something. But it doesn't seem like they all gathered up in the morning and had them a little prayer meeting, and then they went off about their business. It seemed that Jesus, his habit was to get up before the rest of them got up, and he went out and he prayed alone. He prayed alone because this is how he, he lived his life. He lived his ministry. Father, what do you want me to do today? Where do you want me to go? What are, your tell, what are you telling me to, to do? He got all the things that he was going to do that day, and, and he went with it. Whatever he, the Father told him that morning in his morning prayers, that's where they went. That's how he lived his life. So all of these men were conditioned to do that. They grew up in a culture of morning, afternoon, and evening prayers. 
If you have your Bibles, you can look at Luke 11. I want you to see what he, how he talks to them about prayer. Because which is more important? Again, is it learning and studying prayer or is it prayer activity? Our pr- Listen, I think our prayer activity heightens the more we study it. And the more we, uh, we, was at, we were at the John Maxwell um, you know, conference over at Church of the Highlands. Jim and I went, and they were piping it in from the main campus over in Birmingham. And, uh, and it was Charles Tremendous Jones that was mentioned by, I think, Lencioni, didn't he? Or was it Maxwell? Maxwell mentioned Charles Tremendous Jones. And I knew exactly what he was coming with because I'll never forget hearing Charles Tremendous Jones. What, it sounds like a professional wrestler, doesn't it? <laughs> or a boxer. He was like a, a Zig Ziglar person. Made, a, made all of his wealth and in insurance. But he was a motivational speaker and went with Zig Ziglar's uh, team that they would go and, and Terry and I went to see him in Jacksonville, Florida in the 80s. And I'll, I'll never forget what he said. You'll be, in five years, you'll be the same person you are today except for two things. The books you read and the people you're with. And I remember that, and lo and behold, John Maxwell says that. Charles Tremendous Jones. So what do we read? Somebody asked me if I wanted to read a, a murder drama novel. No. No. All the, the guy, who's the guy in Mississippi that writes those? Grisham. No, you'd have to beat me with a stick to make me read that. Take up my time to read that when there's so many other books to read. But, you know, like reading should influence us. Or why are we doing it? And we ought to get, there's books on prayer. There's, there's all kinds of study on prayer. And I think the more we, the more we study evangelism and witnessing, one-on-one, soul winning, how do, you share your, how do you share your faith? How do you break the ice with people? All of those things affect us. And it gives us confidence as well. You know, I can, in a given moment, be able to pray with someone or at least share my faith with someone. Even though we might be uh, personally more introvert. You know, and, and if I tell people I'm kind of an introvert, they're like, oh, come on. But uh, I've gotten more accustomed to being up in front of people. But I would rather not say anything in front of people growing up than anything. Just don't put me in front of a crowd. But when you realize that you can share your faith and not everybody's going to curse you <laughs> and be mean to you, and I've had that happen too, but more people welcome someone caring for where they're going to spend eternity. They, they care about you taking the risk of doing that. Well, the same thing with prayer. Study. Let me just read Luke 1. Or Luke 11, 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he was finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just like John taught his disciples. And some of them came out of John's group. So they already knew this mentorship when they were following a rabbi or a teacher. Part of that teacher's responsibility is to teach them how to pray. And he said that when you pray, you say, Father, hallowed be your name, Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we also forgive everyone who sins against us and lead us not in temptation. 
and some add and, and deliverance from evil. So mentoring students in prayer was maybe a common thing in, in that day. And there was said, Jesus, we know how John taught his disciples, but you teach us. You teach us. You show us. And he gave them a pattern of prayer, not something to memorize and recite like we do it and call it the Lord's Prayer, when really it was the disciples' prayer that he was giving them. But he was giving them a pattern of how the, the different components when we go to pray, worship should be right at the start. Hallowed be your name. That's, that's, that's a statement of worship, of adoration, of recognizing the greatness of God. How do you think Jesus prayed? How do you think Jesus prayed in such a way that they like, show us, would this be, show us how you do that? <laughs> would that be like maybe the possibility? Show us, show us how you do that. What do you say? How do you say it? How do you get there? How do you connect with the Father like you do? And we don't have to go too far to find examples of Jesus praying, do we? I want to take you to three. One of them is in John 11, and one of them is in John 17. You might know I was going to throw that one in. And one of them, I think, is in Matthew Let's look at Jesus praying. Gee, isn't it interesting the Son of God had a prayer life? <laughs> it's like we just think, well, he knows everything. No, he did not know everything. He laid that privilege down. He became one of us, limited. Only the things the Father told him is what he said. He became one like us in a limited environment. But he always was connecting with the Father through prayer. Now, you know the story. They get word that Lazarus, his sisters, Mary and Martha, send word to Jesus that their brother is critically ill. Please come quickly. And he waits. He waits four days, and uh, then he tells them, says, we're going. And then he has to tell his disciples, well, he's dead. Now, how did he know Lazarus was dead? His father had to tell him. He, he was doing exactly, this is so interesting, because he prays a short prayer. And sometimes we just kind of look over that. But this little short prayer is really amazing. I don't even know. It is a prayer. But when you look at it, it's like, what was that about? Because he, right after he says, he goes and he's weeping as he goes to the cemetery. He breaks down and he starts weeping. And when he gets there, he says, remove the stone." And the sister's like, uh, he's been dead three days. It's going to be an awful odor when you roll that stone away. And this is exactly what he does. This is, Luke, this is John eleven forty one, And Jesus looked up and he said, this is his prayer. It's not a long prayer, but watch this. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And what does that tell you? Just stop right there. I think you have heard me. What does that say? 
He's already been praying. He's already been praying about this whole thing. And it's not about right then, really, right then was not, was not what it was about. He said, Father, I think you've, you've already heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this. This is so interesting. I'm saying this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. That you sent me four days late. <laughs> you could add that. Because they were telling him, they were really getting on to him. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. But you're four days late, and he's dead, and he's out there buried. Show me where, where you buried him. I mean, this is the exchange. If you follow it, they're really perturbed with him that he shows up late. So what is this praying? He's praying in such a way to let them know that God had this all under his control. He says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me and you always hear me. And I'm saying this for the, I mean, he's saying this in front of the people. And I'm saying this for the benefit of all these people so that they will know that you sent me on the right schedule. I'm adding that. <laughs> because they thought it was done and it was over with. Now notice in the prayer, what, what, do, you, what do you notice that's not, that's absent in this prayer? Because the next thing he says, he calls him out of the grave. He doesn't ask the father to raise him. No. He's not, he's not even uh, petitioning the father to do anything. He says, I'm glad you hear me and you have always heard me when I pray. And I'm saying this for the benefit of the people who that they will believe that you sent me. And then he says, Lazarus, come forth. And here he comes. And I think that tells you something about how Jesus prayed. He wasn't always petitioning the Father to do something. He was petitioning the Father to carry out what they had talked about, what they had prayed about, what they had already discussed in prayer. Well, that could be an element we could draw from. And, and I don't believe it's a, some people say, well, if you pray for, for something more than once, it's a, it's a, what, an act of unbelief or something or doubt. And I, I, you know, God knows he's working with us, okay? <laughs> if we could cross every T and dot, every I like the way it's supposed to be and we get the form or the formula, I think this is where we get off. It's not the formula. It's our relationship with the Lord that operates through our prayers. It's not whether we, are we, am I praying this the right way? But, you know, he just, he just tells Lazarus to come out of the grave, and here he comes. Here's the second prayer I'm going to take you to. It is the longest prayer that we have recorded in the Bible that Jesus prayed. And it's in John 17. Now, I'm not going to read all of it because it's in uh, practically the entire chapter. But I want to read the opening words of this prayer because this is the evening prayer. They, they've had the meal, and this is the evening prayer. Okay? 
And this is how Jesus starts his prayer. He ends up praying for the, the disciples, and really you and I are in this prayer if you follow it on through. Jesus said this. He looked up into heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those whom you have given him. Now this is eternal life. that They know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's kind of interesting how he speaks his name in, in third person like that. He doesn't say that and you sent me. He said, but the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent, that they would, he knows they're listening to this prayer. He's praying and he's reinforcing this whole arrangement between the Father and the Son. And he said, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And what do you think? What stands out to you there? Is there anything here that you can see that says, oh, I see what's important to Jesus? What is important to Jesus here? And should that somehow affect how we petition our Heavenly Father in prayer? What was the single thing that Jesus wanted? The glory of God. Glorify. I've come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you. It is the exaltation of the father, exaltation of his plan. That he's come to give eternal life. And it's all about the glory of God. It's all about how can that change how we approach prayer? We may be willing to back off of what our demands are and say, God, you know what's best. Glorify yourself. Help me to be part of the glorifying of your name. And this is what he's saying. You glorify your son so that your son in turn will glorify you. And then he finishes that. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I want that glory to be present in how this thing finishes. And he knows it's finishing. He's already told him. He's, he's really told them, I'm going, and you can't go where I'm going. And you have all that exchange in John 14 and, and all the things he said in 15 and 16 about I'm going to send the comforter and all of that. But he finishes this evening with prayer. And the last, time, last place I'm going to take you to is in Matthew 26 is Gethsemane. Same night, they walk out of that room. Now, John doesn't record all of this like Luke and Matthew record it. But, you know, he goes in the garden with all the disciples except Judas, and Judas is back with the arranged betrayal. And he takes Peter, James, and John into a, a deeper place into the Gethsemane grove of olive trees. And he tells them, well, let me just read. This is Matthew 26, verse 36, if you're there. 
Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. Sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Now watch this. And he said to them, to those three men, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, I might be mistaken, but I think this is the only place Jesus requested anybody to pray for him and with him. I don't think you find another place in Scripture where he asked any of his disciples to join him in this kind of place. They went in that inner place of the, of the Gethsemane for him to deal with what's coming. And he's already said, I am at the point of death. My soul is so overwhelmed by sorrow. Death is on me. Stay here and watch with me. And he was telling them to watch with him in prayer. Well, he didn't say it there, but he does say it later. Watch, watch in verse 39. It says, going a little further, he fell, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not what I will, but as you will. He returns to the disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray. Here it is. This is what he's got them in there for. He's got them there to pray. Pray for him. Pray with him. So that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let me ask you this. Was it within their capacity to stay awake and pray? Undoubtedly, that's what he's asking them. You, you can't hang in here with me? You, you know? Or would he ask them to do something that, that he knew they, would, they were not capable of doing? Wonder how that night would have been different for them. It wouldn't have been different for Jesus because he's going to do what he's going to do. Wonder how that night would have been different if they had done that. I know it's an if, you know, all, of, all these hypothetical things, and it didn't happen that way. But Jesus expected them to do that. This was not a drill. This was not like, well, I'm just going to take these guys through the motion, and they'll find out later that they should have been praying with me. He's desperate that they stand with him, that they pray along with him. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Has any of that changed? Fatigue, anxiety, depression, fear, all of those are detriments to praying because we just feel empty. We don't feel like it will go anywhere. 
And this is what Jesus was telling us. Says, yes, you're sleepy. Yes, you're tired. I'm tired too. <laughs> I need you. I need you here. I need you on your faces praying for me. And he did this a couple of times. And the last time he says, okay, it's, you don't have to pray. <laughs> it doesn't matter. They're here. They're here to get me. But when you look at that, it says, how are we supposed to approach praying? What do you think in this, in this, just this setting in Gethsemane, what do you think are some principles about praying that we could draw from? Absolutely. Anything else? And they knew how to pray. Yeah. Pray, pray even when the outcome is known. Pray. You know, they, they had had a pretty rough evening already. And he had already predicted what they was going to do. But even with that prediction, he still seemed like he expected them to at least do this. No, you're going to run for your lives, and you're going to be terrified. And, and he said, all of you are going to, no, we won't do that. But when he, with the three men that he had with him when he raised people from the dead, he took them into places that he didn't take all of he took them up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And those three, those three, he really thought, they'll hang in here with me. They'll be here. They'll, they'll, they'll stay. One hour. It's one hour. <laughs> it's one hour. That's all I'm asking you for. And they, did, they couldn't give that to him, or they didn't give that to him. Think about this. Jesus knew that Lazarus had died. But he still went. And he still did, the, did what he and the Father had agreed upon. And it's just like right here in the garden. This deal was already settled. But he's still asking the Father. He's still saying, if it's possible, let this pass from me. But not what I want but what you want. This could be the very prayer that we have to pray sometimes. Lord, it's not what I want, it's what you want. You know, and sometimes I think, you know, um, when, I'm at, when I'm at the Gifford Hunting Club, I'm the professional prayer. <laughs> you know, the preacher's going to pray over the food. Or he's going to bless the food. Have you ever heard that? I don't know if I can bless food. It, am I going to make it taste better? Or am I going to ask God to make it taste better? I, I think I know what they mean. And that is giving thanks for the food. But we, we don't really pray that way though, do we? We, we might give thanks, but we, we kind of approach these things like the prayer is the blessing. And the Jewish people prayed different. 
they didn't pray for things as much as they thank God for things. There's a, there's a Hebrew blessing over the cup, and it's easy to memorize if you hear it enough. It's Baruch Atah, blessed are you. Adonai, Lord, Elohunu, our God, Melech, King, Ho'alam, of the universe. Bless, and this is, what, this is how they prayed over the cup that was at the Passover. It wasn't even over the cup. It wasn't even a petition to bless the cup. It's blessing God who provided the cup. It's blessing God as the source who brings forth the fruit of the vine from the earth. That's really what that means. That, that what we have in our hands, God has supplied and we give blessings to him. We bless him. We thank him. And I really think um, that maybe more of our praying should be done that way. Recognizing that God is our supplier. He's the one that provides. And while we hold blessings in our hands, it's already blessed. Maybe our prayer should be more of a gratefulness to God for what we have. And maybe the younger generation has not like, how many decisions do you have of what you're going to eat this evening? How many options do you have? Between here and your house, you've got all kinds of stuff. But when you grew up in the Depression, you didn't have all kinds of stuff. You had a 50-pound bag of dried beans, and you hoped that lasted until the next 50 pounds because that's what my dad said they ate on during the Depression. And then my grandpa was lucky enough to shoot a rabbit that was like a feast over the weekend. So, you know, it, it's a little different. When we went to Argentina and the missionary Ron Pitts told us, says like, a lot of these people are so poor, they only have enough to get food every third day. So, but don't feel sorry for them and don't, don't dote over them because that's, they don't want that. Their, their approach is if God wants us to have more food than every third day, he will provide it. And we will give thanks. Well, when we came in there with a construction crew from Jackson Assembly, we, had, we, we bought food for lunch every day, and these young people that was there working on the building, they would pray over food. Jason would tell me, he says, I'm, I, they're praying in Spanish, but I've never seen anyone pray over food like that. I mean, they were animated. They were like, praising God. And I thought, because God had provided them food every day that week. And they weren't giving us credit. They were giving him credit. And maybe, just maybe, we need to probably reorient our praying not to petition to have, but, but give praise for what we do have, for what he has blessed us with. Now, I'm, I'm sharing a little bit of this on this first service this year because we're going to take the first seven days of February for a seven-day fast. And not everybody has to fast all seven days. But in the middle, near, near the second half of that, we're going to do a 24-hour prayer. It's going to start 
at 7 p.m. on that Wednesday night and go to 7 p.m. on the Thursday night. I think February 1 is on a Friday, so we're, but we're going we're gonna to call the church to fast. And at the end of February, we're going to have what we call a miracle week with special services of believing God for miracles and healings. And, and I just feel like, you know, January, right at the, you still got the holidays. It's kind of hard <laughs> with leftovers from Christmas to fast because we're all trying to get rid of it. And I think we've, we've gotten rid of ours. Yeah. So we're, we're back to regular stuff now. But it's kind of hard to focus on January being a, a month for fasting. But I'm just telling you, I really believe just like if, the, if those three guys had, I don't, I don't think it changed anything about Jesus, but if Peter, James, and John had really prayed, I think their performance that night would have been different. I think they would have handled that whole deal differently. Maybe the same outcome for them would have been that they ended up hiding. But quite possibly, the guy that he got his ear cut off, <laughs> if Peter had been prayed up, he probably wouldn't have sliced that guy's ear off. I'm just speculating here. But if we fast and pray, does that change how things work? It does. And it's not that it's the fasting and the praying. It's us bringing God into the equation of our lives. So we're more sensitive to what he wants us to do and what he wants us to say and what our focus should be. So let's stand together. Let's just commit this year to the Lord and just present yourself to the Lord. Just, Lord, here's my life. Here's this year. Um, show me. Show me what you want of me. Reveal to me every day what you want of me. Lord, I give 2019 to you. I give myself to you. I give Brendan and I offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you, Lord, and that this year belongs to you.